What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Nagura. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around you, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. That's, and it's funny. I'll tell you why. I'm gonna... That's a good one, Matt. No, I'll tell you why. Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I am Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nagara. And today we're going to talk about the Springfield Three. This is a very notorious case that remains unsolved. And these are, uh, well, two young women and a slightly older women, but, but basically three young women that went missing uh, in 1992 never to be heard from again. There's all kinds of theories about this. It's a pretty complex case, isn't it? Or at least there's a lot of details involved, right? Yeah, and, and these women didn't just disappear like one from a supermarket, one from the mall, and one from the barbershop. These three women who are Stacy McCall, she's eight, she was 18 years old at the time, her friend Susie Streeter, she was 19, and Streeter's mother, Cheryl Levitt, who's 47, all disappeared between the hours of, say, 2 a.m. and 8 a.m. on June the 6th, 1992. And the case, as you mentioned, received a lot of national attention. The FBI was brought in. At one point, America's Most Wanted put out an episode about it, hoping to get tips. And the case for several decades has re remained unsolved, although a lot of theories, a lot of suspects have been called in. There's really nothing linking anyone to anything, which, of course, now we'll talk about in a more detailed way um, from a, my perspective. Yeah. And, of course, they're called the Springfield Three because they went missing in Springfield, Missouri. Before we get into it, Bill, I want to remind everyone to follow us on Instagram and Facebook and, of course, Patreon. That is at Death Row Diaries, where you will get bonus episodes that are not available anywhere else. And you will get that for being a Patreon subscriber. That helps keep the show running. And it's just... Uh, a good way to support the show and then you get episodes that not everyone else can hear so having said that um where do we start here with the springfield three this is like pretty much a normal day in the life of these teenage girls and then uh until it wasn't so where do you want to where do you want to start well i think we should start at the events that happened on June the 6th, 1992, which was 
the graduation for uh, Kickapoo High School and who was graduating was Stacy McCall and Susie Streeter. And like most kids, it's a big day for them. It's a day that they're gonna start their lives as adults. And they had planned to go to a number of parties like most kids and really just enjoy themselves, see their friends, some for the last time, others uh, would continue seeing those friends in the city or town of Springfield. And the two young ladies, Stacy McCall and uh, Susie Streeter, actually went to two parties. And in that course, around 10.30 at night, they called Janice McCall, Stacy's mother, and she told her, look, you know, we're a group of friend of ours and we decided to go to Bronson uh, the next morning. And they were hoping then to stay at their friend Janelle Kirby's house. And that was the plan. They were in separate cars, both Stacy and Susie. They drove to Janelle's home. And, you know, they stayed there a little while. They, they enjoyed the company of their friends, some music. And then around 2 a.m., they decided to go to Streeter's home. And that's at 1717 East Del Mar Street. And Streeter's mother, Cheryl Levitt, was last heard from that evening at 11.15 p.m. because she was on the phone with her friend and they were discussing painting a chest of drawers. So the reason I mention these times because I want the audience really to get a feel for what time things happened, what time I believe the crime occurred, and, and there was a crime. Let's not let's not sit here and say, well, look, maybe they ran away, maybe they just want to start lives somewhere new. That is not the case here. This case is an abduction. And I will fill the audience in on why I know that to be true. And there is pieces of evidence that were left that at first were not looking by law enforcement. Remember, this is 1992. This is way before the heyday of podcasts and true crime shows where people are really looking at what to do in these crime scenes, and law enforcement included. Um, but the events that happened clearly paint a picture for me that spells abduction and a crime right yeah I, I don't I wouldn't guess there's a whole lot of debate about that um, but you know that I guess the question is how did this happen um, you know as far as witnesses uh, they, they really just seem to have vanished that's exactly what happened. They vanished. And, you know, we were left with a, with an unfocused picture, but we see certain things, at least I do. So the first thing that happens is the following morning, their friend who was calling them to see at what time they would leave to Bronson together. And that friend um, was, of course, Miss Kirby. And she and her boyfriend went to the home at 1717 East Del Mar Street, who is, where is the, it's the house of 
both Streeter and her mother, Cheryl Levitz. And what they find, the first thing they find is that the front porch light is broken. It's, and it's broken recently because the glass is on the floor right in front of the door. So that's the first clue. The second clue is that the doors, the front door is open, which wasn't that rare there. This is 1992, small town, not a lot of people doing burglaries, but it was open. That's the second clue. They go into the house and the house was not, you know, in a state of disarray. There wasn't broken chairs. There wasn't anything like that. They found the house was very well kept. The bedroom where Miss Streeter, as well as Miss McCall would have slept, the bed looks like the kids had at least got into it. We don't know if they actually slept, but they got into it. And they found that cigarette packs were there. Both women, both Streeter and her mother, uh, Miss Levitt, were chain smokers. It's hard to believe that a 19-year-old kid's already a chain smoker, but these are the facts of the case. And their cigarettes were found there next to their purses. There was also a very, um, well, in my opinion, very substantial evidence that they left without them being willing participants. One of the young ladies suffered severely from migraines. And without that migraine medicine that was left in the house, it would have been like a living hell for her. She would have had to check into a hospital. The medicine was there still at the house in her purse, tucked very carefully in her uh, items. So you have people with habits, Matt, chain smokers leave their cigarettes. A person with migraine leaves their migraine medication. But there's nothing else that seems to be out of place except that the three women have vanished. Well, let me remind you and go back to that broken light. And, and by the way, we also know that they're at the house because their cars, both Miss Streeter and Miss McCall's cars, as well as Miss Levitt's car, are all in the driveway and outside this. They're, they're all there. But in the morning, they're, they're all three were gone. There was not an alien abduction. The light in the front porch gives you a hint. And it gives me a hint of time. So we know that the young ladies came home at 2 a.m. approximately. We know that Miss Levitt was in the house at 11.15 because she was on the phone with somebody. But the light is broken. What does that tell me? It tells me that the perpetrator broke the light. How do I know that? Well, the glass is still broken at the front. He could have very easily reached up and unhooked the light, but he broke it. Let me call you back, Matt. Yeah, so I'm a little confused here, and it's highly possible that I'm way slower than our audience, but uh, I, I don't know if you said it, and I just didn't pick up on it, but I don't understand the significance of the light. I mean, how do we know this hadn't been broken for a long time? Why is this even, I don't understand why it's being discussed. Okay. The light is the first piece of evidence that I see that tells me 
that they were kidnapped and they were kidnapped still while it was dark outside. The light is broken. If there was traffic inside the house or in and out of the house, the light bulb that was shattered on the floor would have been swept away if it was the day before that. No one's gonna leave broken glass in front of a door where people are walking in and out. Number one. Number two, the glass was still there. It wasn't trampled, it wasn't in the house, it wasn't anywhere else. Meaning the person that broke it was coming out of the house when he broke it. How do I know it's still there? Because Mrs. Kirby, or Miss Kirby, the young lady whose home they had visited where there was a party and they were supposed to stay there, but they actually went to Streeter's home. She brought her boyfriend and her boyfriend cleaned it up that morning on the 7th. So we know it's still there. So how do I know that he, the perpetrator broke the light as he left? He went into the house, and I'll get to how he got in and what he did and why he went in in a moment. But as he was leaving, he had one of the victims, he was carrying one of the victims, and he opened the front door, and there is the huge light. Anybody looking out could have seen him. He reached up and just shattered it. He didn't have time to be unscrewing it or uncorking it or anything else. He was carrying a body. He didn't want to put the body on the floor. He was carrying it. So he broke it and the light and the story. He walks out to put him in the car and he returned again to pick up the other girls and put him in the car. Now, that's why the light is so relevant because it tells me if it was daylight, the light would didn't matter because it's daylight. But because it was dark, he broke it to make it even darker so he could stay under the cover of dark. Kind of get it? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay. Yeah, okay. So keep going. Okay. So so the first thing we have to understand, okay, how does a person target people not knowing the people are going to be there? The perpetrator did not know that both Streeter, McCall, and Levitt were gonna be there because their plans changed during the night. They were supposed to go to Kirby's house and they were there only till 2 a.m. and then they left. So they came to Streeter's house. So the perpetrator, although if he had targeted the house prior to this, he would have known that Levitt would have been there and Streeter, not the other young lady. So we can assume a couple things. So first of all, we can assume that Cheryl Levitt was the target because she was the only of the three that was supposed to be at the house that night. And somebody who had gone there to get her would have known that. Second theory is Susie Streeter was the target because she hung out a little stronger crowd and maybe someone in the crowd was after her. I doubt that highly, but this is one of the these people that state that they know what they're talking about said this is true. Okay. Now, I think what really happened was that you have two young ladies, good-looking young ladies, very young. They're driving around town at 1.32 in the morning in these beautiful red cars. One of them, Susie, by the way, her last name being Streeter, has a personalized license plate that says, Sweeter, like S. W-E-E-T, and then capital R, sweeter, okay? Now someone running around, an unorganized killer, 
could have seen that, followed them and killed them or picked them up and, and kidnapped it and did what he was going to do. I also discard that as being true. I've, in all the 40 years I've interviewed serial killers and been close to them and gotten close to them, I've never heard one tell me that he saw a girl pass by with a car and just followed him home. And there was a situation where there was three people in the house. He went in there. He, it's just too much variables, too many things for this particular type of individual to go with. So my assumption is that he went in there looking for two victims and he found three. He knew Ms. Lovett would be there. He knew that Ms. Streeter would be there. He had no idea that her friend Stacy McCall would have been there. So this is so far where I'm at, and you follow me so far, Matt. Yeah, of course. Uh, so, okay. so not so, a yeah, not yes. a, not a crime of opportunity. No, the killer is an organized killer, and I've said this word a couple times, killer. And I'm 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 sorry to say this, but the person who came to their home that night had one intention. He had the intention of kidnapping, abducting Miss Lo- uh, Mrs. Uh, Lovett and Miss Streeter. The bonus was Miss McCall. The person who did this, and you and I have talked about this on this program before, and I seem to say it a lot because we do go over these cases, we've been doing it now for about two years, is what we call an organized, he's a serial killer. That's who did this. It wasn't a person, it wasn't a friend of the families, it wasn't one of the kids, People, the, the, the police department investigated in a, a, in a strange son that was 15 years old, no. The person who came to the house that night was a serial perpetrator. He had but one taking two women but he ran across three. Now, it's fairly uh, easy to say, well, it's impossible for one person to control three people. And usually serial killers, unless you're rich or married, don't really carry guns with them. They like to get more personal. So it's kind of difficult to control them. Not if you're using chloroform. Not if you go in there with the intention of kidnapping and you don't want to be arguing or fighting with the victim. You're organized. You know what you're doing. The best way is to use something to subdue them. Chloroform. He chloroformed Miss Levitt first, Mrs. Levitt first, and then he took the two girls. And this is what happened. This is also a case, in my opinion, clearly, where a super serial killer was involved. He didn't leave blood, he didn't leave DNA, he didn't kill the people there and leave them there, he didn't contact the police department and taunt them, he didn't contact the police department and and give them clues, he didn't come back to the scene, he didn't keep souvenirs, because, as I said before, this particular type of serial killer has a place where he abuses the women, he has a place where he disposes the bodies, This is a person, even in 1992, who knew how to control his impulses. He was very good at what he does. And so much so that 30 years later, he has not been caught. The women have never been discovered. 
and this is my opinion about this case. It's not a random killing. It's not someone who just buried the person outside the city like a bunch of these guys who came forward hinting and playing with police. And as I mentioned, a number of serial killers were involved in this case. Police identified them as being perpetrators, possibly involved. I doubt they were. Right. So there's speculation that there's a couple different killers, uh, at least one bona fide serial killer that were active in, I guess, the general area during that time, which we can get to. But um, so you're, you're pretty convinced of this. And I feel like we at least have to take a look at the boyfriend and their crew because I, I do know that what they're into, or at least what they were busted for, was grave digging. And that kind of, that's kind of freaky, right? Yeah, I mean, that is, and that raised my eyebrow, as did the couple of serial killers that were brought in as prime suspects. But look, there was, there's bikers involved, there's grave diggers involved, there's... If anybody could say, or anybody can be a suspect if you look hard enough and look dirt, look for dirt. I don't believe that they were involved because, again, the boyfriend would have had interest in one person. Yes, if he has witnesses, he can very easily take the other ones. But they make mistakes. They don't go there with the perfect intention of carrying out a situation and leaving virtually no clues where it looks like the girls just vanished. There is no way, of course, a serial perpetrator would have known about the medication for migrants. He would not have thought of the been being chain smokers. But everything else he thought of. The boyfriend would have known she smoked. The boyfriend would have known the, the, the medication that she took. That doesn't jive with me. What jives with me, the person who came was a stranger. He knew the victim. He knew how to take victims. He understood how to do it what he did not understand was that the victims had medication they smoked and that's why he left those things there otherwise he would have taken them he also left the keys of the cars so it means he had his own car okay so there was a a witness an old woman older woman who used to sit out on the porch, on her porch, and I guess she vaguely remembers um, seeing a van pull in that night. Um, she came out later because she didn't follow the news. She didn't know there was a problem. Now, when we get into a few suspects, I want to throw this one at you. Larry Hall, and I think listeners, if they follow true crime, might recognize this dude as the creepy mutton chop civil reenactment serial killer van guy and uh we did an episode on him with uh with jimmy keen and there's also a tv show called blackbird about um him and, and his uh confession it's a really good show anyway um the only thing really that i can see he had a van and that he was active in this area meaning like I don't know, anything sort of vaguely southern, you know, east of the Mississippi. So what do you think about Larry Hall? Well, he's an interesting guy. However, 
He normally took victims that were close to one of his reenactment stages, and they were usually younger girls, and he would leave them somewhere where you would find them. At least in some of the cases. He was also not very intelligent. He also didn't understand how to control his impulses. The guy we're looking for has never been arrested for this type of crime before. So Larry Hall does not fit the, the MO nor the signature of a per, of this person because the person we're looking for, the man that we're looking for, it is a man and he works alone, controls his impulses and does not leave a signature. He doesn't leave a signature because he doesn't need to do anything, any routine or ritual when he works. So Larry Hall, although an interesting guy as a serial killer, would not be the person we're looking for in this case. And then probably the most notable uh, suspect in this case is a guy named Robert Cox. Now, a couple of years later, he's already in prison in Texas uh, for kidnapping. I don't, I don't think, not for murder, but he claims now, yeah, let me call you back because Robert Cox, Robert Craig Cox, is actually a very interesting guy because he actually is a murderer. And I'll explain how I know this and what I know about this guy, which actually puts him at the top of the list of suspects if you were looking in the wrong place. So let me call back. Hey, man. Yeah, so Robert Craig Cox starts telling pretty much anyone who will listen that he knows where these girls are. He knows what happened. He doesn't say he killed them. He said he knows what happened. But his information is not especially proprietary or on the inside scoop. He's like, their bodies are near where they lived. It's like, okay, well, you know, <laughs> that's, that's, that's not enough. So a lot of people don't believe him. However, he is a really creepy guy. And he's he's very coy. He loves attention, like a lot of these guys do. So he's he's being coy. He's he's doing the wink wink thing, but he's insinuating that he killed them, basically. Yeah. So let's talk about Robert Cox. So a little bit of history of him. He is a former Army Ranger, very capable guy. He's also a former death row inmate. In 1988, he was convicted of murdering a Walt Disney World clerk 10 years earlier. And his case in 1990 was uh, reversed and he was ordered released, which he was. And Cox came back to his childhood home, which was Springfield. And he was there in 1992. And, you know, look, he told reporters that he knew the women we're dead and then, you know, he, he's like this guy that has information, but he, you know, he wants to, um, he wants to be out. Uh, he was arrested in 1995 for putting a gun to a child's head during a robbery in Texas. He is serving a life sentence. Um, you know, he, he said a lot of things, you know, he, he, he insinuates that he might be involved, that he, no, look, this guy's a creepy guy. He's a killer. And we know he murdered that young lady in, uh, in Florida. But he is not the killer here. The killer here is not going to contact him. He's not going to tell newspapers or write newspapers rambling letters about what he did. This guy was not one attention. 
So uh, although a creepy guy and a murderer, he's not the, the, the culprit. Now we have another guy by the name of Gerald, and I'm gonna mess this guy's last name because I'm horrible with names. Gerald Carnahan, and he's a 64-year-old guy. He's a businessman, and he got a lot of public attention in 1985 when a young woman named Jackie Johns was beaten to death and dumped in Lake Springfield. And he was named as a suspect and accused of lying to a grand jury about his alibi, but a judge dismissed the charge. But over the years, he became the suspect in a number of homicides, including the 1987 death of Debbie Sue, uh, Debbie Sue Lewis. Like John, she vanished from her car on Highway 160, and like, like John's, her purse and keys were left inside the car's open door. Later on, they discovered the skeleton of Lewis in Newton County. But Carnahan was never charged with that case. So, you know, this is, again, Carnahan was arrested after trying to kidnap another woman on the sidewalk in that area and he served two years in prison for that so he's the guy creepy guy is he an abductor is he probably a rapist absolutely um but this guy he keeps saying he didn't do it but look, look at his mo he tries to kidnap women from cars he is pretty much guilty of killing the young woman left her her skeleton somewhere else and left her keys in her cars his mo seems different not the guy Okay, so we come across Stephen Garrison. This guy's a, a member of a motorcycle gang. And he tells police that he knows what happened to the women. He offers information, but you got to get him out of prison. Look, he says that he overheard someone talking about confessing to the murders. This is what guys do who want to get out of prison, don't know anything about the case, but see the, see the headlines. And they're hoping that some DA is going to bite and say, okay, look, now I'll let you out of prison. Let me know what you know. Again, not the guy. And then there's the guy that you mentioned, Dustin Recall, or Recall, and he is a former boyfriend of Susie Streeter. Now, that kind of bothers me because of his age. The guy's 50 now, so he's over age. He was 20, 21 when this happened. But, you know, he breaks into a Springfield mausoleum a few, means, a few months before the girls vanish to steal $30 worth of gold fillings from a skull. This is not the guy. This guy's a petty freaking thief. Uh, it's just not him. This, this was just, you know, somebody bringing this up and, and bring, it's just people just swinging around in the dark to find answers and looking in the wrong place for the wrong guy. As I mentioned, the guy that did this crime is a serial perpetrator. He is uh, unique. He is calculated. He's intelligent. He understands forensics. He understands the collection of evidence. He is a rare breed in serial killers because he's evolved early and he's able to uh, basically stop those impulses that most serial killers cannot control. It's the impulse to kill because they're chasing a rush. When a serial killer kills, 
It is for sexual gratification. They, they're able to sexualize different parts of control, the abduction, the uh, tying up uh, of women's, a person screaming. All these things are able to sexualize. That makes them very unique. This individual controls all that. That's make, that makes them extremely unique and rare. I believe that serial killer and more like him are the reason that we, we hear less about serial killers and more about abductions or women that disappear or children that disappear. If you don't have a body, if you don't have evidence, if you don't have a struggle and evidence of someone being abducted, you really can't pin it on a serial killer because there's no body. Serial killers, at least this one, learn that if you don't have a body, you don't leave evidence like DNA, blood analysis, and other type of evidence. So the guy who did this, singular, is a super serial killer. And we are not going to find these young ladies' bodies unless for some crazy reason he put them somewhere where he visits them and he has them there. He sells the home or he's put them somewhere, a site a trophy site where somehow later on the rain washes out, a river is formed, and later on the bones are exposed like we had in West Mesa from the West Mesa killer. That particular guy, because they found their bones, they know they have a serial killer on hand. He is also a super serial killer. This is a theory that, that you've come up with, and you're very confident in it. Uh, and whenever you talk about it, it makes me think of, uh, you know, that we haven't explored much of the deep ocean and how, you know, there's probably a creature. Well, there's definitely creatures in there, but maybe even an apex predator that we just haven't discovered yet that no one's really seen. And that's kind of what it makes me think of when you talk about this. Uh, so in terms of the characteristics of a super serial killer kind of the the megalodon to the great white i i want to talk about the characteristics of that i i wouldn't think he would even put all the bodies in a home in his home because you know what if it caught on fire and the fire department had to show up or you know any number of things that seems like a risk right there absolutely i mean he has a place where he takes them he enjoys his work. I'm going to say what it is. And he he has a place like that. He also has a place where he leaves them. And he's fairly confident, actually extremely confident, that no one's going to dig this place up. It could be a, a creek bed. It could be a part of his land. It could be a place that he bought that he only visits and he puts them there. And the chance of them being discovered are nil to none. But he... He is so controlled, he doesn't need all the things that most serial killers we have experienced in history need. Attention from the media. They get a serial killer name, like the Night Stalker, or the Freeway Killer, or the Riverside Killer, you know, or, or the Milwaukee Cannibal. All these names serial killers love because it gives them attention. It gives them a bit of that taste of control. They contact police departments because they like to infuse themselves into investigations. Even from afar, they do it. They like to control the narrative. BTK comes to mind. He loved to control the narrative. And although you and I have done an episode on him, on Dennis Rader, and we talked about him, 
the one thing that was very unique about him is that he completely controlled the entire investigation. He was done. He was free. He had not gotten caught. He had already stopped killing. But yet he, he appears again. And he starts taunting the police 10 years later. Why did he do that? Again, you heard it first on Death Row Diaries. And I told you and everybody else why he did that. He had what's called empty nest syndrome. His daughter was getting married. His son was going into the armed forces. He had nothing else to do except one thing, Matt, and that was put a face to BTK. And by the way, he also named himself that. So once he put himself in the spotlight, he got caught on purpose by sending that CD to the police department where they found his name written and what church he was sending it from, and they arrested him. Now he does interviews from prison because, again, he's controlling the narrative. He needs that. That is an impulse he cannot control. This guy I'm telling you about has none of those issues. He is a walking, talking machine. He doesn't need any of those uh, rush factors or anything because he controls it all. His rush is that he's no one knows who he is, only himself. And that is his greatest achievement. So I'm picturing this guy. You're kind of describing someone who's very efficient. Um, I'm assuming this guy doesn't draw attention to himself. I'm assuming he's not freaky looking, missing all of his teeth. He doesn't have a, you know, a mohawk that's dyed all the colors of the rainbow. And I'm also assuming he has some resources, whatever that might mean. Oh, this guy's more likely, and I'll give you a profile of him, of who he is. He's a white male between the age of 33 and about 39 years of age. He's a professional, meaning that he has a career in a, in a very meticulous uh, profession. He could be a dentist. He could be a doctor. He could be a lawyer. He could be a police officer. He could be anybody that has a well-situated uh, home life he probably is not married does not have children he is dedicated to his career almost to the point that people find him to be extremely uh, well adapted what i mean by that he's the kind of guy that at a at a house party he probably is very gregarious he's probably decent looking very intense almost to the point that he scares people a little bit, but not enough to draw attention. And he probably lives somewhere where he can at least have enough privacy to work. And what I mean by work is kill, dismember, rape, and do the things that he does. Kind of reminds me of Robert Hansen. The gentleman that used to uh, the the Alaskan hunter. Yeah, the butcher baker. Yeah, it's actually a series right now, but a little bit different. He he took women to a place far away and and he hunted them, but he left the bodies there. He also was had a trophy room in his house. He was a, a baker and was married, but not the same type of guy. Similar, serial killer, but at the same kind. Let me call back. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. 
Hey, man. Yeah. So let's real quick talk about the psychology of this because it is interesting to me. Uh, and I know you're an independent guy. I think we have that in common. I don't need much validation from religion or women or whatever it might be. However, if there's something that makes me really happy or excited, um, hey, I might get this sailboat that I like. Uh, I got a date with this girl that I really, you know, that I really like. I feel like, yeah, I don't, I don't need to tell anyone. However, I find myself doing it because I'm excited and I can't shut up. And I think most people are like that, right? So how is this dude able to keep all this under wraps, right? Because most of the stuff that I accomplish is, is for me, I think, but I still want to share it with people. Granted, it's not a dead body, but it does still seem like basic human psychology, right? Well, of course. And when we do good works, we're a graduate from a university graduate school. We have a PhD or something. Yeah, we want people to know. We see it all the time. Doctors who are sophisticated individuals and very well organized put those plaques on their on their walls, right? Say PhD in neuropsychology and all this other good stuff. We naturally do that. There is a psychology to it. It's basically, you know, good works. You want to show people. Race car drivers do when they get a trophy, they put it in a big old trophy case. These are all things that humans do. Humans don't naturally kill people every week or every two weeks or every month or whenever they do it because it's different. This guy doesn't need to do that. And I'm willing also probably to bet that in his normal life, because he, he, he lives a double life, in that life, he's like every new, normal human being. He puts his plaques on his wall, but he's not doing it because he needs to. He's doing it because he's a, because he's a performer. And most psychologists will know exactly what I'm talking about. A person who knows he performs as a child, a person, because his parents may have been, this is just may have been, uh, you know, strict or they were abusive in some ways, the child learned to perform to please his parents. When he gets older, that child becomes a man and he now understands that a performance is required to make people feel settled. They feel okay about him. So everything for him is a performance a very good performance because this guy is good but very normal looking very difficult to sit there and say haha this guy does this obviously he is a killer and in most cases serial killers don't look that way there's a, there's a few <laughs> we run across a few guys and you can't help but say god this guy's a freaking monster and we know it this guy's totally different and um in one part of his life that he's compartmentalized when he's, when he's killing, he's compartmentalized one part of his life. When he's normal, when he's living a normal life as a normal human being, as a doctor, lawyer, police officer, whatever he is, he is also performing. And he has compartmentalized the other part of his life and he shows no attributes of it. He doesn't leer at women, he doesn't slobber himself when he sees women. He's very calculated. And he normally doesn't even think about those things when he's in his other persona. He doesn't have multiple personalities. It's the same guy. He just understands how to compartmentalize extremely well. He's got to be sober. This guy is not a guy that hangs Absolutely. out. He does not hang out in bars because next thing you know, you're making a, a joke about you know, the bodies under your porch. And, 
And that's when... Yeah, that, no, this guy, this guy doesn't drink, doesn't use drugs. He's very controlled, as I said, extremely controlled. Um, and he doesn't give off signs of being wound too tight, none of those things. He is a person that completely vanishes in thin air in front of people because no one would suspect this guy be who he is. So I'm sure you're thinking, well, then, Bill, how the hell do you catch a guy like this? Well, in most cases, I would tell you, you can't because nobody's out there is trained to do it. They don't know what to look for. How you find a person like that is to go to his beginnings. You have to find a case where someone can, you can almost see it from afar, the control. And you find that case by looking at his beginnings. Because at his beginnings, he would make mistakes. Later on, when he perfected his MO, you couldn't, you can't catch him. He knows exactly what he's doing. Unless by some random, you know, uh, possibility, a camera catches a car he's driving. And maybe there can be uh, some type of inference that maybe this guy's involved. But that's all you'll see is maybe a, a glimpse of a camera or something because there's cameras everywhere now on people's front porches. Uh, and, you know, the streetlights have them. Everyone has uh, cameras. They have them on their phones. And someone might just pick up on this guy. But as far as catching him for what he's doing, the chances are slim to none unless the right guy is hunting him. Yeah, I had a... This is a little bit high concept, but just follow me. I was talking to a friend and there was a house that was on the market and some people had been murdered in that house. And I said, I don't want to, I don't want to live in that house. I wouldn't live in the house. And she said, Oh, why you really believe in ghosts and all that? I said, not really. It's just, I'm wondering about, and I believe this was a random attack. So it's like, what was it about that house's position on that street where if you, I don't know, if you took 100 people and you put them on the freeway and, and you said exit here and just drive around, how did they end up at that house? I don't know. I'm sure it's completely random, but it was enough for me, not that the other part wasn't perturbing. Um, I, I guess it's a, a question of... Uh, almost mathematics or something, but how, how do you pick a random, uh, a random target? Cause at that point it's not really random. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, some, some killers or, you know, they, they pick any, many, mine all. They like the house. They like the way it looks. It reminds them of their childhood. Uh, they saw a dog up front. It reminded them of that. It could be anything. The most serial killers, you know, when they enter homes, they usually scope it out first. They stock it. They understand how to get in, and they have an exit way to get out. Uh, the Golden State Killer did that. He was a police officer. He'd walk into a neighborhood. He'd see a house. He'd break into it first. He'd put things in the house. So he'd be ready to do what he do when he left or when he got there. Others, like Richard Ramirez, just picked a house. And you know, they walked around. They stalked around. They found an open window or a way they can get in, and they go in. It, it's, that's, a, you know, that's a pretty scary situation to go into someone else's den and hope catch it in the sleep and being able to do what you do. And he did it a lot. I mean, he has 15 murders. But 
Um, yeah, it, randomness is, is, is a, a bit more rare. Most guys that are going there to kidnap, abduct, or kill have a target in mind. Mm-hmm. So I guess bringing it back, we should say that if anyone listening happens to know anything about the disappearance of these women, if you heard something, if you saw something, I'm sure it's never too late to report that to the authorities, but it seems like a long shot at this point if we're being brutally honest, don't you think? No, absolutely. But yeah, we should. If we, if we hear something and it seems that it may be credible, please contact your police department or local police department. You know, someone's life could depend on it. In this case, I don't think it really depends on that, on these particular three women, but maybe some other woman's there. Maybe they have somebody else already and they're trying to do something harmful to them. So we definitely would encourage you to call, but please don't call because you saw a movie and your next neighbor looks a little creepy and you want to get this guy roused. So we, we do not encourage that type of behavior. Yeah, and do not try and get back at your ex-boyfriend or ex-husband by insinuating that he's responsible for this because that, that's very irresponsible on your part. Absolutely. Yeah. Bill, we will be back next week. Until then, I've been Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nagara. And, and by the way, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we do appreciate you guys listening to us and listening to our concepts and our perspectives. So, as usual... Be safe, be aware of your surroundings, your life can depend on it. We'll see you next time.